Hello and welcome back to The Reeducation. Today the topic is nuclear blackmail and nuclear deterrence. My guest is Tim Morrison, currently a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a senior director of government relations at Boeing. I'm having Tim on because before all of that, he served for Senator John Kyle and the House Armed Services Committee and also the National Security Council as an advisor and expert on military and foreign policy, but specifically a specialist on nuclear deterrence. He is an ideal guest as somebody who has been on the inside and knows this stuff cold. Personally, I do believe that Putin is capable of using tactical nuclear weapons. And what we learned in Ukraine is no matter what people believe, we have to be ready. So I can tell you at home, I have a backpack with everything needed for the uh, potential nuclear threat for myself and my family, because no matter what would happen, we need to be ready. This is uh, what we already learned hard way. You just heard from Kira Rudik a member of Ukraine's parliament, saying something that would seem unthinkable a year ago. She and her family have prepared for the possibility of a nuclear strike from Russia. There's a cruel irony to this moment in Ukrainian history. At the end of the Cold War, Ukraine found itself in physical possession of several Soviet nuclear weapons when it was part of the USSR. So when Ukraine became an independent state, it was technically a nuclear power, even though the government in Kiev lacked the command and control over the weapons on its territory. And so in 1994, America, the United Kingdom, and Russia offered Ukraine a deal. It's known as the Budapest Memorandum. Give up your old nukes, and in exchange, these three powers are committed to respect Ukraine's territorial integrity and independence. For 20 years, that bargain held, more or less. But then, after Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych reneged on his campaign promises to integrate Ukraine into the European Union, after significant threats from the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin, the Ukrainian people took to the streets. They were furious. Yanukovych's regime fired on the protesters, but the anger of citizens who felt betrayed by their elected leader was too much. Yanukovych, like a thief in the night, fled to Russia, and Ukraine's parliament soon after impeached him. In Moscow, Vladimir Putin viewed all of this through the typical lens of his, which is conspiracy and paranoia. And so in 2014, he sent ununiformed special operators, Spetsnaz, into Ukrainian territory. For many months, by the way, Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin denied that they had invaded Ukraine, which is kind of bizarre. They quickly took over the Crimean Peninsula without much of a fight. There was a Russian military base there to begin with. And Putin would later annex Crimea through a kind of sham vote in his sham Duma. And the Russians also established separatist enclaves in the eastern oblast of the country. You probably have heard of them, Luhansk, Donetsk. And these same groups, by the way, these separatists were the same people who fired on a civilian airliner using Russian missiles. It's bad stuff. In a flash, the Russian leader proved an old maxim that I believe is first attributed to Menachem Begin. There is no such thing in this world as a guarantee of a guarantee. The Budapest bargain, give up nukes in exchange for promises of security, was nullified by one of the signatories to that deal. It was nullified by Vladimir Putin. And with it, I think it's fair to say that the hope that countries would trade away nuclear deterrence for security guarantees from more powerful states died. 
it died in 2014. Maybe it even died before then when Muammar Gaddafi in Libya gave up his nukes and then he lost his regime, not on a whim, I might add, after basically threatening to commit genocide against his own population. But nonetheless, the old hope that you don't need a nuclear deterrent because it's much better to be friends with the current nuclear powers, well, that's all gone after 2014. Now, in 2022, the world is facing an even scarier kind of nuclear crisis. And once again, it is caused by Russia. It's caused by Vladimir Putin. Russia's nuclear rhetoric is dangerous, reckless, and uh, they know that if they use nuclear weapon against uh, Ukraine, it will have severe consequences. And they also know that uh, a nuclear war cannot be won and should never be fought. That was NATO's Secretary General Jean Stoltenberg doing his best to deter a cornered bully in the midst of losing a war that he started. And we should really emphasize here that the Russian military stinks. First of all, it, it never established reliable supply routes deep into Ukrainian territory. It's, it's, it relies very much on the kind of incredible rail system of Russia, but it was unable to kind of get these supplies to the lines. It, it completely underestimated the agility, the resolve, and the bravery of Ukrainian forces. And in the process, they've had to significantly scale back their war aims. And now there is a counteroffensive where Ukraine is going and winning back territory that recently, like on September 30th, was officially annexed again by Russia. Anyway, now nuclear weapons have lurked in the background of the Ukraine war since it began nearly 10 months ago, when Russian forces first invaded, the country's nuclear arsenal was put on high alert. Since then, a variety of Russian officials, including recently Dmitry Medvedev, a former president and the deputy national security advisor, deputy chairman of their National Security Council, have actually come out and sort of said the quiet part out loud, proposing the idea of a first strike using what are known as tactical nuclear weapons. Now, these are smaller, harder to detect nuclear weapons as opposed to just the strategic variety, which are very large, can be seen by satellites. Tactical nuclear weapons would include suitcase nukes, you know, which I'm sure you've read a lot of the kind of science fiction spy novels about that. But also there's such a thing as sort of nuclear artillery fire. There, there's all kinds of things like this. And therefore, you can expect a tactical nuclear weapon would have a smaller blast radius than a strategic one. They're sometimes called city killers, the strategic variety. But nonetheless, they're very bad. And there would, of course, be fallout and radiation. And we have now, for more than 70 years, a kind of prohibition on the use of any kind of nuclear weapon when it can't, comes to warfare. And this would now change that if, he, if, if the Russians did use tactical nukes. It's also using such tactical nuclear weapons, part of Russia's military doctrine that would use tactical nukes if its territory was being attacked. And that's why it's important that Russia's reckless and somewhat comic decision last month to officially annex the four oblasts in eastern Ukraine, it's significant because if Putin, you know, believes the illusion, if he believes this, like, you know, this magic trick that, oh, they're suddenly part of Russian territory, then he could, I guess, plausibly say that Ukrainian counteroffensive to take their country back was an attack on Russian sovereignty and therefore would trigger this military doctrine. Now, I have to say something here. Countries come up with all kinds of doctrines about when they would use certain things, and it's important. It signals to adversaries and so forth, but it doesn't mean that that's necessarily going to happen. That's always going to be the decision of the leader. We know that 
Russia has strong command and control, so it is Vladimir Putin's decision. So take that for what it's worth. The sort of Russian, very bellicose military doctrines that talk about tactical nuclear weapons, part of that might just be a way to sort of intimidate the United States and its allies. Now, there is an argument that all of this talk about tactical nukes is a bluff. For example, if Russia launched such a tactical nuke, it would likely lose diplomatic and economic support from China, its most important ally right now, and India, which is kind of plated, you know, both sides of this, because they are two nuclear powers, China and India, that have a vested interest in not normalizing the use of nuclear weapons in war. So there would be some blowback, a lot of experts believe, with China and India if Russia did this. They would not continue to kind of remain neutral in the case of India or somewhat supportive in the case of China. Also, if Russia did this, if Putin did this, it would invite a response from America and her allies. Now, here is retired General David Petraeus from October 3rd. The one that I pointed out as a possibility, and it's only a possibility, a hypothetical, would be that this would be where the U.S. and presumably other countries, whether it would be NATO or, or collective, it's hard to say, uh, could take action within Ukraine, perhaps, uh, in a way that would actually make Russia's situation even worse. In other words, to take out with conventional forces uh, many of the Russian capabilities that still exist in Ukraine and perhaps even on the Black Sea. Uh, so it would make this disastrous situation even more dire uh, for Russia. As uh, Petraeus sort of points out here, you know, the United States can do a lot of damage to Russia's military without using nuclear weapons, can do it with just our conventional force. Okay, but what if it's not a bluff? What if eventually Putin orders a tactical nuclear strike on Ukraine? Would this risk the kind of ladder of escalation that would eventually lead to a nuclear war? That would eventually lead to Armageddon, to borrow the phrase that President Biden used last week at a fundraiser in New York City. Here is former President Donald Trump making the counter-argument. And now we have a war between Russia and Ukraine with potentially hundreds of thousands of people dying. We must demand immediate negotiation of a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine, or we will end up in World War III and there will never be a war like this. We will never have had a war like this, and that's all because of stupid people that don't have a clue. And it's also because of the kind of weaponry that's available today. You, we never had weapons like this, the destructive capability of weapons, modern weapons. I know more about it than anybody because of the fact that I rebuilt our military. Trump's position here has attracted a lot of support from unusual places. I, I actually, let me say this. Other people have sort of made versions of Trump's argument. I don't want to say that people are like necessarily lining up behind Trump. The popular YouTube show, Breaking Points with Sagar and Jetty and Crystal Ball, and by the way, I want to say it is a good show. I recommend it. They've devoted a lot of their recent coverage to the argument that America's playing with fire by continuing to support the Ukrainian war effort with more and better arms. Like Trump, Sagar and Crystal support the U.S. pressuring Ukraine to begin negotiations with Russia. Now, I want to say this, make it as clear as possible. This is not because Breaking Points, Sagar and Crystal, or others who take that view, like Glenn Greenwald, are doing this because they're Russian stooges, or, you know, they, they just spout Kremlin disinformation. And I would hope my audience by now appreciates how much I detest that kind of neo-McCarthyism. It is a valid position, even though I disagree with it. Because 
I mean, to steel man the argument, if the even if the odds are very low that the escalation ladder would get out of control, the chance for a real nuclear war, the prospect of a real nuclear war, is so unbelievably horrific that we should do whatever it takes to de-escalate the situation, you know, regardless of other things that we would lose in the interim. So as I said, I understand where they're coming from. Nonetheless, I disagree. And here's why. Because if Vladimir Putin's nuclear blackmail works, if he's able to carve off territory from Ukraine after launching a war of conquest because he scared Ukraine's allies into inaction with the threats of going nuclear, then what's to stop China, Pakistan, or North Korea from doing the same, from playing their own nuclear blackmail game? Maybe we will accept China's conquest of Taiwan. Perhaps we will be okay with Russia's conquest of Ukraine. But eventually, the atomic bullies will make a demand that we cannot accept. If we give in now to Putin, we are not preventing a nuclear war. We are just putting off a nuclear war. Because these things never stop with just one thing. It never is, give me Sudetenland, give me Czechoslovakia, I swear to God, then I'm finished. That's the mentality of tyrants, is that they push and they push and they push until they meet steel. Now, there's another point here, and I think it's important as well, which is to say nobody has to respond to Putin using a tactical nuclear weapon with nuclear strikes of our own. Nobody has to do that. We could, you know, as, as David Petraeus said, there are plenty of conventional responses which would be significant penalties to the Russian military. America and its NATO allies are capable of turning Russia's Black Sea fleet into scrap metal with conventional weapons. The only scenario where Ukraine, in this sense, I mean, should negotiate with Russia is when Ukraine's elected leadership chooses to do so. And this is a very important point. Russia started this war. If it gets away with it, it will start more wars. And it's undermining our basic principles as Americans not to support an elected leadership of a country that is repelling and having some success now in repelling that Russian invasion. Now, ideally, Russia should eventually come to the negotiating table, but it should come to that negotiating t table after suffering a significant and humiliating loss. Right now, we need to continue to support Ukraine's army as it continues to smash Russia's invasion force. Until then, I would hope that Vladimir Putin thinks carefully about how much he has miscalculated in the last 10 months. He has failed to understand the toughness and unity of Ukraine. He has failed to understand the resolve of Ukraine's allies. And my hope is that he has failed to understand that threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons will do nothing but further isolate the basket case country that he presides over. Tonight, 
And now, a word from our sponsor. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. Right now, the re-education is very lucky to have as a guest my friend Tim Morrison, who is currently a senior director for government relations at Boeing and a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. But the reason that we have him on today is because Tim has spent most of his career in Washington working on defense issues and particularly nuclear issues for the Senate, Senator Kyle, the House Armed Services Committee, and the National Security Council. And somebody who knows these issues, nuclear deterrence from the inside, which is a really valuable thing, contribution right now. So Tim, thank you so much for coming on The Reeducation. Eli, thanks for the invitation. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, as we used to say. And uh, <laughs> I just wanted to say uh, thank you for the introduction. Yeah, I'm here speaking as a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and of a course. longtime government employee. Uh, I'm not here to speak uh, or represent any other group or organization. Yeah. No, no, no. I want to make that clear. I just wanted to say that. So I want to start off by, by saying, at this point, would you characterize... Are we, are we now in the phase of what we might call nuclear brinksmanship with Russia in regards to the Ukraine war? It's interesting because Vladimir Putin himself has not been as explicit as people around him. There was Dmitry Medvedev's comments last month, as I'm sure you saw. So are we in a position now of nuclear brinksmanship where this option of maybe using a tactical nuclear weapon against Ukraine in some way is on the table? Would you describe it that that's where we are at this point? Yeah, you know, I I struggle to decide how do you compare this to previous you know historical events. Is this the most dangerous time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, as some of the commentary have described it, or is this something different? As, a, as our current president has in a fundraiser, right? Well, so you know, the first thing I have to acknowledge is I I only know what I read in the papers. I, I don't have a daily CIA brief for anymore. Sure. I don't have access to interagency deliberations or diplomatic cables, and I, I don't know who is up and who was really down in the Kremlin. And I, I also don't know what messages are being sent to whom in Putin's inner circle by whom. And that information really matters because without those insights, we're all just Monday morning quarterbacks. But I think to sure. your point, it's clear that, that, that Putin himself has made clear that Ukraine is Russia. Uh, Ukraine is a part of the Russian empire. It was a part of the Soviet Union. There was no Ukraine without Russia. There was no Ukraine without the Soviet Union. And that matters because Russian nuclear doctrine is very, very clear that nuclear use is justified when Russian sovereignty is at risk. So even before the annexation, but I think it's actually it's actually harder for Putin now. People talk about giving him off ramps. He closes off off ramps more quickly than we can mm -hmm. create them because now he's annexed directly provinces of Ukraine. And so if he has to give them back, he's giving up Russian sovereignty, that is squarely within his own nuclear use doctrine. 
Okay, now before, I want to just take a step back. Can you explain the difference between strategic nuclear weapons and tactical nuclear weapons? Because it comes up a lot in the conversation now. Yeah, you know, it's it's really, it's a it's a historical artifact of arms control. Back to when we first got in the business of nuclear arms control, we basically defined strategic nuclear weapons as the weapons we could see from our national technical means. We, we couldn't, we, we could see big missiles. We could see heavy bombers from space. We could see ballistic missile submarines in port. And so the things that we could see that we could trust but verify, we limited in arms control. And those were strategic weapons. And everything else was non-strategic weapon. Military leaders over the years have been very clear. A nuclear weapon used anywhere would have a strategic effect. And it's the case that even if you're not an ICBM, let's say you're a you know, a Russian intermediate range cruise missile, the kind of cruise missile they, they deployed in violation of the INF treaty, you could have the same size of a warhead on a so-called non-strategic weapon as you have on a strategic weapon. And so the, the distinction is really a historical artifact, like so much of, of arms control. Mm. It's a legal construction of what was convenient to, to ratify a treaty. Um, it doesn't actually relate necessarily to range it certainly doesn't relate to to yield and therefore damage. Well, I, 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 the reason I wanted to ask is, and that was a very good answer, is, I mean, we're just speaking historically now, the U.S. and Russia have developed, you know, I mean, the, the, this is all public source. Sometimes you hear the term suitcase nuke. Sometimes you've talked about nukes on artillery as opposed to a kind of missile delivery. We have tested smaller weapon systems that would have a nuclear payload. It, when we're talking about these kind of tactical nuclear weapons, as we sometimes refer to them, they would fall into that category of sort of, you know, smaller than a than a ballistic missile, smaller than a submarine. Is that what you're getting at? I mean, I think the, the way to think about it is we yeah. limit the, the deployment, uh, not the possession, but the mere deployment right. of so-called strategic nuclear weapons under a new start, which the Biden administration saw fit to extend by five years. Those are the only weapons we limit or control by arms control. I see. Then there's everything else. And so, you know, when I was in the administration and we were thinking about our new START treaty posture, one of the things that we did was we worked with the intelligence community and we declassified as much information as possible to inform the American people and our allies for why we were going to make some of the decisions we were going to make. And as part of that declassification, yeah, that was particularly true in the INF treaty. That, that, that right. was true, yeah. but but then even subsequent to that, in May of 2019, at the Hudson Institute, where I now am a senior fellow, as you as you stated, the the then director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Lieutenant General Ashley, stated, and I quote, that Russia possesses up to 2,000 such non-strategic nuclear warheads not covered by the New START treaty, end quote, and now has quote dozens of these non-strategic delivery systems already deployed or in development, end quote. And he continued by saying, quote, accurately accounting for these non-strategic nuclear weapons is not only complicated by the lack of transparency, but by their dual capable nature, rather, excuse me, dual nature capability. I want to get the quote right. So that, that was the end of the quote. And, and what that really means is if Russia has a conventional weapon, you can safely assume there's a nuclear warhead uh. for it somewhere. And that's that could make it very difficult to see, because like I said, you know, we have national technical means. It's well understood. It's talked about openly in the New START Treaty, for example, that that can see Russian submarines going into port. It can see Russian right. missiles deploying around the country. If you have a warhead for an artillery system or a warhead for some sort of shorter range missile system, 
you may not be able to see that. So it may be the case that we can see warheads leaving storage areas if Putin decides to, to bring to reality his threat vis-a-vis Ukraine. But it could also be that we can't. Mm, okay, that's very good. Can you just, b- b- before we leave tactical versus strategic, what would you use this non-strategic nuclear weapon for that you know what i mean the way the way it's been explained to me by other experts in the past was the strategic weapons are like city killers and the tactical you could maybe see a scenario where you'd use that in a conventional war is that right i mean like why what's the point of having these smaller nuclear weapons i guess is my question well i think there's a couple things one i just want to be clear because this is sometimes misstated Mm. other countries may use nuclear warheads as city killers the united states does not we have a very strict doctrine that is applied across the decades we target military targets we target important military industry we don't target cities other countries may that's the so-called counterforce versus counter-value approach. And one of the things that people in the nuclear deterrence and nuclear operations space think about is if you go below 1,550 deployed warheads, which is the new start limit, at what point if you go down to 500 warheads or 300 warheads, at what point do you no longer threaten unacceptable damage on your adversary's military or industry uh, and in order to deter him, you have to hold cities at risk. That would be a violation of the law of armed conflict, intentionally targeting civilians. We don't do that. Other other countries do, unfortunately. But, you know. Well, we did it in World War II, but that was before a lot of these things were in place. Well, but we, we did and, and we did, right? I mean, we tried to target military important cities. We did our targeting during the day in order to prevent undis- you know, indiscriminate damage. That was the so-called, you know, there was a difference between how the U.S. Air Force or Army Air Corps and, and the British Air Force did business. Right. So even then, we tried to not target cities for the sake of targeting cities. We tried to target cities that were that were home to important military industry. But so so why would you want to have a lower yield nuclear weapon? Maybe you want to have yeah. a lower yield nuclear weapon to, to defend your territory. Maybe you're you're looking at it from the perspective of Russia. You are conventionally weak. You are a large land power with a declining population. And in order to prevent an invasion of your territory or what you consider to be your territory, even if you're claiming someone no else's else territory. Yeah. You, if you need to defend that territory, maybe you want a lower yield nuclear weapon that you're comfortable using on your own territory. That's not the way. So you could use that to like for like a mass of troops or a military installation that's like a forward deployed base or something well, like that. And to be clear, that's what we did during the Cold War, right? That's why we had nuclear artillery yeah. shells because we were afraid that the that the Red Army was going to roll through the Fulda Gap. And we would need to bottle them up while we brought the the totality of our conventional military uh, to bear. Okay. Okay. That is extremely helpful because these are terms that are kind of flying. Now I want to get into, here's a little, little, little insight into my guest here. I believe, Tim, you have a mug that says make deterrence great again. Is that right? It's a hat. It was my Twitter avatar it's a hat. I'm sorry, for a yes. long time, but yeah. Yes. Okay. Anyway, I love that. But let's talk a little bit about deterrence because there has been commentary, especially after last week's news story about President Biden. And then we saw some comments from former President Trump. But there's been a lot of commentary along the lines of that the United States is pushing Vladimir Putin into a corner and would force him to use tactical nuclear weapons, which would then spin out into some sort of thermonuclear exchange, which is, of course, a horrible world ending nightmare scenario. 
so you know maybe we just kind of give a little bit of a background on some of the lessons of cold war nuclear deterrence theory that might correct some of these misimpressions if you will that I've seen in, 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 you know, at least in, in certain quarters. Well, so look, I mean, I like that you say that nuclear weapons use would could be a world-ending event. It, 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 it could be. But thermonuclear that, exchange, I should say. I want to make that very clear. Exchange. It, it, sure. Yeah, it, exactly. It, it could be. It doesn't necessarily. I mean, I work at the, the you know, Hudson yeah. Institute, and you know, we were founded by, among others, Herman Kahn, who was you know, the author of many, of many works. He, he coined the term escalation ladder. You know, there, there is a scenario where nuclear use stays at a lower level. We trade military target for military target. And there is a scenario where that spirals out of control. It keeps climbing the ladder. And, you know, it's a, it's like you know, Matthew Broderick, 1983 war games. Yeah. The, you know, and, and, but, but, but where I was going with that is that's Eli Blake, you know, father. That's, that's yeah. Tim Morrison, you know, father. That's right. not necessarily Vladimir Putin. And so like one of the things that's really important in deterrence is, that we don't impart our views and our values on our adversary. Vladimir Putin, you know, to quote John McCain, is a you know is a is a mafioso thug, right? I mean, he's he John right. McCain, the late John McCain, called Russia a a mafia-run gas station with nuclear weapons. But Vladimir Putin came to power by you know false flag bombings of his own population to justify the Second Chechnya War. Vladimir yeah, Putin's you're talking values, about the famous apartment bombings of, of 2000. Precisely. Right, Vladimir exactly. Putin's values are not our values. He may not view it that way. He may not view a nuclear use that kills a bunch of Ukrainians as, as that kind of a nightmare. And, you know, some, some people, you know, have a triumvirate. I have, I have a quartet, right? And so my, my, mm. nuclear, my nuclear godfathers, people like Keith Payne, Colin Gray, Herman Kahn, as I said, Tom Schelling. And and one of the yeah, things who I've recently had to reread. Yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the things that Keith, who's like I said, a longtime mentor of mine, is is he's had to say that uh, you know these kinds of comments, and I quote, usually reflect only our lack of understanding of how differently opponents can define what is rational behavior, that they do not buy right. into our enlightened interpretation of rational. End quote. You know, Putin may view it as entirely rational because. You know, Joe Biden, or the president of the United States, was elected to represent a democracy. He is co- he is constrained by rule of law, by a by a separation of powers, by finite term limits. That is not Vladimir Putin's worldview. Vladimir Putin's most important priority is keeping Vladimir Putin alive, protecting his regime, and a nuclear use that satisfies his hawks that he has done everything possible to win in Ukraine. To win what he started, perhaps mistakenly, that could be entirely rational for Vladimir Putin, even if it seems right. insane for us. Okay, but now I want to get to how do you then deter him? Because there is an argument from Schelling that you don't want to be too specific. You want to say we're resolved to do something really serious if you do it, but you don't want to paint yourself into a corner. You want to kind of preserve options. And then there's like another argument where you want to be very explicit about exactly what you're going to do. So he is deterred. And I wanted you to weigh in on that. But how, I mean, just in this scenario, how do you kind of, what's, what do you, how do you deter Putin from using that tactical nuclear weapon? Well, you know, I mean, I, the, the shelling lesson I draw on is, okay. is, you know, quote, the important thing is not merely having a capability. It is projecting the willingness, indeed the requirement to use right. it. Right. 
So I think that the, the, the problem is when, when Putin draws a red line with one of his nuclear warheads, you know, the problem for the administration, and it's, it's a hard problem. I, I'm not here to criticize anybody. Let's say he draws a red line with one of his nuclear weapons and we don't cross that red line. Maybe we don't cross that red line because we never intended to. We think it would be silly to cross that red line. But does he, Putin, read that as, ah, I drew my nuclear red line. The Americans didn't cross it. They are deterred. So I'll draw my nuclear red line a little bit further to the left into their, into their court and a little bit mm-hmm. further and a little bit further. How do you stop that? How does Xi Jinping read that as he continues to right. grow his nuclear stockpile? So, you know, I would be on the side. And again, I, like I said at the, the outset, I don't know what messages this administration is sending. They're being careful in their public messaging. There is an argument in favor right. of that. Don't publicly box Putin into a corner. But I, Oh, yeah. No, no. And I agree with that. Yeah, That's, but, I think, 100%. But, but I think, you don't want to publicly box I, him I think anything. you have to be clear with Putin going into this. If you use a nuclear weapon, we don't care how big. It could be 10 tons. It could be 10 kilotons. If you use a nuclear weapon... I think we need to communicate very directly to him, maybe not publicly, but we still have to communicate to him. Here is what we're going to do. And I don't Mm. know if we're doing that. It's tough to see a a public manifestation of that. You know, the kinds of messages. What would the hear? I mean, what what would the hear is what we're going to. I mean, for example, Fred Kagan has talked about the idea that, you know, we can credibly threaten if it, if you use a tactical nuclear weapon, we will enter the conflict in Ukraine and just break your military. You know, there have been other suggestions, which I don't think are realistic, that if you do it, you know, we can track your physical location and, you know, drop a conventional cruise missile where you are and kill you and the people around you. I mean, what is the legit deterrent threat that might get Putin to think twice about first use of nuclear weapons. Yeah, I mean, I think it I think it makes a lot of sense to talk about would we introduce US military force right. into Ukraine? Would we use it to push him back? Would we provide Ukraine capabilities we haven't provided them yet? Would we facilitate the transfer of of MiGs from Eastern European states that we haven't presently supported? Would we would we provide Ukraine ATACMs, longer range missiles for their HIMARS system? Would we send US military force to the Ukrainian borders to send a very clear message of if you cross this line, those forces are going into the country and they will push you out of all of Ukrainian territory. I, I, I think it's I think it's important to not negotiate against ourselves. I think we have intelligence. Yeah. I think we know where our allies will will support us and where they won't support us. One of the things you could see Putin having in mind, and we dealt with this during the INF Treaty, he wanted his INF range missiles. You know, and he was happy to have them at the price of, of, of covertly violating the INF Treaty. But what he really wanted was he wanted to have his missiles and he wanted the U.S. to get blamed for violating that treaty. He wanted the U.S. to get blamed by NATO to divide NATO. So if he thinks he could use a nuclear weapon to halt the resupply of military arms to Ukraine, uh, make sure that a Ukrainian insurgency cannot have long term mm. support. And he can do it by dividing, let's say, France and Germany from the U.S., the U.K., and Poland. You know, breaking NATO, dividing NATO, that's also a win for him. So part of any response, part of that kind of messaging to Putin of the price that you will pay, uh, you have to safeguard, for example, how do you maintain alliance cohesion? That, that has to be an important value because we know 
ending that alliance cohesion is a long-term goal of Putin's. Do you think that America is capable of deterring Putin in this circumstance? I, I, I absolutely believe so. One, because again, I believe Putin is a, is a rational actor. And, right. uh, but using what you were saying before, rational in his, con rational doesn't mean thinking like us in the West. No, I, again, I think what and that's very important. It's like don't mirror image rational. One hundred percent. I mean, yeah. I think there, I, yeah. I think that he has a rational worldview. It is one that you and I and, and most people of good of good faith would find repugnant. But you know, right. and so Keith Payne again. What we have, what, what we now confront is the threatened use of nuclear weapons for revanchist purposes. We are accustomed to thinking of deterrence as serving defensive purposes, but Russia's and China's coercive nuclear first use threats are here and now in support of their common goal of overturning the existing world order. So they, yeah, they conquest, view right. nuclear weapons as having a different purpose. And it, we don't, and one of the things we have to think about here is I think it's a, it's a, it's a, a false understanding of deterrence to think that we have to deter Russian nuclear use with American nuclear use. I don't think that's right. Like, like Fred was speculating, maybe the way you, you deter Russian nuclear use is by the threat of introducing U.S. conventional power. If Russia, can, right. if Russia can't defeat the Ukrainian military, what, 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 what could they possibly think they could accomplish against the full might of the U.S. military? Right. Of course. No, no, no. And that, that makes a lot of sense. What I was trying to get at, though, is that it's not like a hopeless situation. Now, I guess we have a, a, we got five minutes left. Thank you again so much for your time. But I want to just hear, just walk the listeners through why it is so bad for American interests and, frankly, the world's interest if, if this sort of round of brinksmanship and this conflict ends with Putin feeling that he was able to secure territory or any strategic goals as a result of either nuclear threats or use of nuclear weapons. So, so, so he's able to get what he wants because of the threat is what I want to try to well, get at. Well, that, Why is that, that so bad? That, that's right. Of course, and, you know, in 2014, the argument was, well, you just don't do this in the 21st century. The, the, the problem is if he gains from it. If he gains from it, where does yeah. it stop? Where does he stop? If he gains from it, where does where does Xi Jinping stop? What what does that mean for the for the future of China? What does that mean, or rather, excuse me, the future of, of free China, the future of, of Taiwan? What does that mean there as well? And you know, we forget about it, but I, I don't think we should because one of the things we're really talking about here is the future of 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 nuclear nonproliferation. Because remember, Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons, what would have been the third oh, yeah. largest stockpile in the world in the Budapest Memorandum. And as part of the Budapest Memorandum, the United States and Russia and, and a variety of other parties promised to safeguard Ukrainian territory, Ukrainian sovereignty. So if you are, you know, if you're the next country out there that thinks about giving up their nuclear weapons, why would you if your fate is going to be Ukraine? And if you're already thinking about it from the perspective of North Korea or the, the thugs in, in Iran, why would you give up your nuclear weapons? Look at what happened to Gaddafi. Look at what happened to Saddam Hussein. Well, I mean, forget even the idea that we're going to get them to give up their nuclear weapons. The, 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 I think the bigger point here, right, is that if, if, if it is perceived that having nuclear weapons and threatening to use them will get you territory that you 
we're losing in a conventional war that you should have never invaded in the first place, well, then we are in a whole new world of, you know what I'm saying? And then that, what does that, that, how does that stop, you know, North Korea from making demands of South Korea or China, as you pointed out, from making demands of Taiwan saying, don't come to the defense of Taiwan or we will use nuclear weapons if that's perceived to be This isn't about some fuzzy US-based rule, you know, international order that people talk about at Stad and people talk about in Geneva and people talk about at the UN. Exactly. This, this is about this is about the question of what do we want the world to look like? Do we want the world to look like the world before 1945, before, you know, or, or after 1945? Do we want the, the, the general peace and security where, where, where free trade has allowed billions to rise out of poverty in relative peace? Or do we want the world before yep. 1945 when we didn't have this international order that our grandfathers built because they saw the price that you paid if you didn't have it. Because we all are familiar with what it's like to deal with a bully on a playground. And if you let the bully keep coming at you, he won't stop until you punch him in the nose. And the question is, where do we stop the bully? Do we let him take Ukrainian territory? Does he does he then get to take you know, territory in the Mideast? Does China get to take Taiwan? Does China get to take Vietnam? Where does where does it stop? Does it not stop until it, it, it violates a, a treaty ally of the United States? And then you're going to start hearing questions of, well, are these treaties really that important to us? Can't we just retreat behind our oceans? That we, we, we're familiar with this rhetoric. We we saw this rhetoric before World War II, and you know if history doesn't repeat itself, it surely rhymes. But now it's going to rhyme yeah. with biological weapons. Now it's going to rhyme with chemical weapons and nuclear weapons. If we don't stop it here, what will be the argument to stop yeah. it? You know, ten years down the road. Well, this is the, the this is a great place to end it because that is the argument for why it's so important for Ukraine to repel the Russian invasion. It's not, a, and that if you're talking about off off ramps, you need to that if you have to say no, no, no. You you don't get to win. You're you're 100. And it's not it's not just for Ukraine. It's the U.S. Hat, has to stand behind its word. This, the Budapest Memorandum was 1994. If, if, if we don't stand behind our promises in Ukraine, why are we going to stand behind them with Taiwan? Why are we going to stand behind them with Japan or Poland? Why? What is the argument? What is the intellectual logic that I am missing that says Ukraine is, is disposable and dispensable, but Taiwan isn't? But Japan is it? What, what is that and, argument? And, and if we can, and if, and if we help Ukraine make the stand now, then we don't have to we don't have to have to find out the answer to those questions that you're raising about Japan, Poland, Taiwan, et cetera. That, that's the point. The point is that it's like do it now or you're going to end up having to do it later. Especially so if you're worried about a new yeah. especially when we could do it in Sorry. Ukraine without U.S. boots yeah. on the ground, there's no U.S. soldier, sailor, airman, marine or guardian whose life is at risk right now. That's. That's yeah, a, that's a bargain. It's it's, it's a remarkable and the and the the fact that the Ukrainians are so willing to fight for their country, proving Putin's initial speech at the beginning of the war so wrong. It's not just inspiring and not just making it feels good. This is this is the hinge moment right here. Free people will still and fight. That we to cannot defend allow the threat of nuclear weapons to change the dynamic in such a way that Ukraine then falls and American credibility suffers even more. And it might be that that might be the fatal blow to American credibility, as I think. We don't want to find out the answer to that. A question. free That's people gotta... will still fight to defend themselves. Why Absolutely. would we not be behind? Well, that? with that.
Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Tim Morrison, we will have to have you back on The Reeducation. This was a great conversation. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for the invite, Eli. I appreciate it.